Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 56. I'm delighted to be back with you. Crazy week we just had. Um, hope everybody's doing okay. Seemed to be just an onslaught of, of the kind of news that makes you infuriated and then makes you weep. So uh, let's get into it. You know, I can't start the show without talking about the loss of Taylor Hawkins wonderful rock drummer, wonderful human being, you know, just kind of like embodied the joyful nature of being a rock star. Whenever I saw the, the Foo Fighters perform, you know, and I had the pleasure to work with them on a lot of events. And it was always like, you know, Taylor went after it the way like the dudes in the audience would go after it, you know, like, hell yeah, I'm up on stage. I'm getting to do this and I'm going to rock out, you know? like it's the greatest thing in the world. Cause it was, you know, he performed like it was a celebration, you know, and that's what the best of them have. Springsteen has that sort of thing. You know, you, you feel like this is the greatest moment, you know, that he's ever had on stage. He sort of emanated that all the time. And it's a real loss when you lose a performer like that, cause they don't come a- around that often. And that's why he was sort of beloved you know, across the spectrum in terms of genres, it's like everybody liked that dude because he was like, as I said, he sort of also fit the archetype of what you think of as a rock drummer, you know, this Laguna Beach surfer looking dude, you know, who just was wild and played with abandon yet precision, you know, and, and I don't think most people maybe that aren't musicians realize how difficult it is to to find a great drummer. It, it's the one missing ingredient in most bands that try to make it to the big time you know it's it's a lot different to play live and in a bar and in and then to be able to record an album you know and stay in the pocket and stay in the groove in the studio when you're doing 50 takes and you got to hit the snare and exact this you know the exact same spot every time with the same sort of timing with the same hit you know, in terms of velocity, there's so much (laughs) that goes into being a pro drummer, a great drummer, you know, a Russ Kunkel, a a Phil Collins, you know, Stevie Gadd, you know, Jeff Piccaro, who I think is the greatest, Um, though it's not a sport, you know, a Neil Peart, like all those guys were great, bombastic, killer live drummers, but they could all perform in the studio. And Taylor had that, you know, he started as a session musician and then played for some Canadian groups, culminating in Alanis set, you know, and he was clearly a star when he was in her band. I remember the first time I saw him on SNL performing with her in the early 90s. And I was like, who's that guy? Like, that dude is a star, you know, snatch him up, you know, and obviously he and Dave met and became, you know, bandmates and the rest is history. And, and you know, he was just a, just a, an incredible soul. And I can't imagine what those guys are going through. I, you know, I'm, I'm still friends with a lot of people in that crew and in that management. And you guys who listen to the pod, you know, know that I go back, you know, with, with Dave and that sort of world, you know, and, and to see it sort of happening again, you know, to think, man, what's Dave going through? And, and to know that, you know, I thought the same thing in 94, you know, I was like, God. You know, what's what's it got to be like to be Dave right now? The band was on top of the world, you know, and he's repeating the same thing, you know, almost 25 years later, 20 years later, whatever it is, 26 years later, it's like, 
they were at the apex of their popularity, the Foo Fighters. You know, they just had a, a movie come out. They have a record come out. They were going to play at the Grammys next week. Like there was all this kind of stuff on their schedule. They were on a massive South American tour playing festivals. You know, they were living life again after a year, you know, or two years of a shutdown where everything changed. They were sort of back out there living the dream and giving the dream to their audience and every night and, and, and every night. You know, and that's a noble pursuit in many ways, you know, yeah, rock stars, you know, they get all the glory and the money, but when you're out there on the road, it's a grind. Anybody who hasn't done it doesn't really know what it's like, you know, I mean, there's worse things to do in life. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not a dream come true, but it's hard. It's hard work and it's a lot of pressure, you know, and there's a lot of trauma right now in that camp. I just know because, because that's your brother, man. That's your brother in arm, at arms. And they were about to play, right? They were 10 minutes to be on stage. So they hadn't left the hotel. You know, if people don't know how it works, like your crew is already there on a festival gig. The crew's already been there all day setting it up, right? So the band is back at the hotel with the road managers and the security, you know, and they sort of come over and roll in at the last minute and walk right up on the stage. But the sound guys and the monitor mixers and all the instrument techs and, and monitor techs, they're all standing around. So they all would have heard over the radio, you know, that something happened, you know, hold tight. And then 10 minutes later, they would have heard, you know, that Taylor was gone. And, and the shock of that while you were in a gig, while you still had to break down and do a loadout would have been unbelievable. You know, so my thoughts and prayers with all those guys, you know, I, I've known for a long time, some of the people that had had that duty, you know, that, you know, I'm thinking of one person in particular, I won't say his name, but he's their tour manager. And, you know, I can't imagine what he's had to deal with in the last 48 hours, just the logistics of it are heartbreaking and staggering and shocking. So, you know, let's just send a lot of love their way. I won't get into any of the reasons we lost him and we lost him that's all ultimately that matters you know you lost him and you won't replace him anytime soon but he got to live his dream and he brought a lot of joy to the world and there's a lot of worse things you can do with your life even if it's cut short than what he did so that's a legacy that'll live on forever it'll inspire people you know and now he's he's you know he's in the hall of the rock gods you know of which there's too many on the other side and it keeps, uh, you know, it's a club that keeps growing and it's a, it's a dreadful one when we're left behind, but you know, the music never goes away. Love never dies, you know, and, and in music and playing at that level, it's love. It's an act of love. Dave loves music. He loves his audience. He loves the fact that he gets to go on stage every night and play, you know, and he got to do that with his best friends. And that's a gift. Even if it was cut short, I'm glad that they got the last sort of almost year together. You know, they played the garden last year. It was one of the first big shows back after the pandemic. And I, I heard I wasn't there, but I heard it was a pretty emotional night. You know, that's when they covered the Bee Gees. And, uh, you know, I'm glad they got that. I'm glad Taylor got got those triumphs. I'm glad they got the Rock Hall induction last year. You know, the first time I met Taylor was 2001. You know, as you guys know, I worked on the rock rock hall inductions for like 20 years. And that year, Queen was getting inducted. And Queen was like, you know, Taylor's favorite band. He just he I he was like a Queen 
geek you know like he knew all the all the queen kind of stuff which is great queen's a phenomenal band but so he and dave performed tie your mother down as a tribute to queen if i think i remember correctly i'm pretty sure that's what they played it might have been a medley after that too but you know i remember how psyched he was before you know because back then we just shot it at the waldorf so we'd be hanging out in a hotel suite upstairs before you went down for the gig and he was just bouncing off the walls that he got to do that you know and and i was you know with him in the kitchen of the waldorf when he came off stage and he was floating on air but also freddie mercury's mom was there with us and the whole night i keep thinking how tragic it was you know like you're not supposed to outlive your children you know and and freddie had died in the early 90s right so we're already you know 10 years past losing freddie and i just remember being like it's so bizarre that his mom is still here and he's not you know and uh it was you know for a sensitive person it was a glaring thing like she was there to be part of the celebration but it was bittersweet and uh and taylor sensed that you know he came off stage and, and jubilant and getting to live out a rock and roll fantasy and right away kind of honed in on her and went over and gave her a hug you know and i remember thinking like that's a good dude you know that's a good dude who, when he steps off stage he's got equanimity with the other folks around him he's not just looking for the other rock star or whatever or the glory in his uh you know his fame and his talent it was like hey you know who can I help out? Who can I put a smile on their face right now? You know, and that's the kind of guy he was. He was one of those dudes who just lit up the room. He had that kind of charisma and uh, everyone liked him and everyone's going to miss him. So uh, rest easy, brother. It's a tough one. And uh, I'll talk more about it. I'll have some friends on, you know, so many of us have worked with the Foo Fighters. They were just a constant on like the VMAs and all this kind of stuff. And I have a lot more stories I'll get into at another show i'll get some other people to share some of their stuff but i want to you know just just offer thoughts and prayers and, and respect and you know keep it quiet you know on the dl while we all process this and uh let's see did anything happen politically this week <laughs> right like how do you even begin to unpack the week we just had and i know i've been saying that for 56 weeks since i started this podcast but oh my god you know Let's just let you know, let's start with the quietest revelation because it ties into all this stuff. And uh, it got it got buried in the onslaught that there was was this week's news. But um, it came out this week that Ashley Biden's diary was purchased by Project Veritas. OK, who then like passed it around the, the Trump campaign fundraiser in Florida near where it was stolen you know, and tried to use it to, to disparage Joe Biden during his presidency. So this happened during the election. The backstory is that Ashley Biden was down in Florida during the pandemic. She's in addiction recovery and she stayed at a home of a friend. So bungalow kind of house there in Florida. She stayed there, you know, for the better part of a year or something, I guess, in this year of sobriety. Right. So it's like your first year of sobriety. You do a lot of journaling. You do a four step. Anybody who's in recovery knows what I'm talking about. You put pen to paper and you do what's called a moral inventory, you know, where you write out your powerlessness and your fears and your first steps and all this kind of stuff that's like basically medical information, right? Because addiction, 
And alcoholism is a disease of mind, body, and spirit, right? So you really have to uh, be willing to to take an honest look at yourself to to begin to recover, you know, and uh, there's no shame in this, but it's a difficult process. And it's a very intimate private process that works best by putting pen to paper. So that's what she was doing. And that's apparently what this journal was. It was a sobriety journal that she left in a, you know, a, a, duffel bag of clothes or something that she told the dude she would come back for, you know, later in the year or something, you know, the pandemic lifted, she could travel again. And she got out of there and stowed this stuff in a closet. In the meantime, somebody else moved into the house, found the diary, found that it belonged to Ashley Biden, called up her, you know, ex-boyfriend who was an ex-con scumbag and said, I think we can sell this for some money. Right. So they started shopping it around and they got in touch with a big Trump supporter who was having a big fundraiser there in Florida. And they went to uh, the fundraiser with the journal in hand and passed it around. And it ended up in the hands of Project Veritas, who needed to verify it. So what they did was they called up Ashley Biden, but pretended like they were somebody who had found the diary and was going to return it to her. And she agreed and was like, yeah, I'll, you know, FedEx it to me or whatever, you know, and they did that just to authenticate it. They were lying to her and misrepresenting themselves and did it just to prove that it was her diary. And then they tried to use it as compromise. So completely despicable behavior, not a surprise at all for anybody who understands Trump and how he operates. It's all compromise. It was compromise when he got those buildings built in New York City. I've been telling you guys that every week for a year, right? That's how he rolls. If you need a building permit, you find out what the guy's tastes are and you put some temptation in front of him and make him feel like he's safe and gonna get away with something at a party and you roll video and then you show it to him afterwards and you got your building permit, you know, or your television show (laughs) or your renewal for the second season of your television show because he would invite all the NBC executives to stay at his hotel in Vegas where you can't gamble. So you're going to do something at his hotel. And by the way, you can't gamble because he couldn't get a gambling license because his ties were too big to the mob. But uh, and imagine that right in Vegas. But anyway, uh, so they do this, you know, they pull this sting operation on Ashley Biden and it barely registers as a news story. Right. I mean, it came out Monday. Washington Post did a big feature on it, but I don't think anybody put it really together. So I just wanted to mention that first. Because if you're familiar with sobriety, you know what a four step is and you know what that notebook would look like and you know what you would feel like if somebody was taking that and trying to make it public to prevent your father from getting a job that he was entitled to have. You know, it's just beyond the pale. And then when you think about the fact that Don Jr. is in the active throes of a relapse, you know, that's lasted for several years now and it's very public and nobody in his family cares at all about him, you know, enough to say, Hey, scrump, stop making those videos with the Coke flying out of your nose. (laughs) You look like an idiot. And we're even more of a laughing stock. Nobody does that. You know, both his sister and his brother know what it's like to be dry, right? They're both bad drunks, fall down drunks who dried up. Right. But they're, they're older brothers in a relapse and they don't do a damn thing about it. Not to mention their father, who's addicted to, uh, you know, Adderall and benzos and all kinds of crap. So my point is, you know, you got one side of this family that acknowledges they have addiction and treats it because it's a medical issue, right? And Ashley Biden's, you know, diary should be treated 
like medical records, right? Like stealing somebody's medical records, which by the way, if you had seen Trump's medical records, he wouldn't have been president. That's why they stole them, you know? And that's why they lied about his condition. And he wrote his own doctor's note, you know? But if you had transparency, you'd realize where the Trump family was, you know, riddled with addiction. But instead you have Biden and his kids who are honest people who are public about their recovery and there's no shame in recovery. Recovery stays, saves, lives, saves lives, right? You know, we, we may find out Taylor died of addictions. I know he struggled with it. You know, I struggle with it. There's no shame in it when you get help. If you don't get help, it's a deadly, deadly disease. So what you're trying to shame Biden for getting help while your own son is coked out on YouTube every night, you know, and your father's got chunks of Adderall flying out of his nose and he's rage tweeting at two in the morning when he's president, you know, and put a lock on the White House door. So it's just completely scummy. But in the avalanche of, of awfulness that was last week, it barely sort of got mentioned by the pundits. And that was Monday. So I just wanted to start with that. And then I think Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, besides the drama of KBJ's confirmation hearings, which I'll get into in a minute, what did we have? We had Alvin Bragg, right? Alvin Bragg basically shuts down the investigation into Trump that was started by the Manhattan district attorney before him, right? Who, who'd given, you know, Cy Vance, who'd given Trump's kids a pass over Trump Soho and was sort of making right on that, you know, finally holding his feet to the fire and started this major investigation and impaneled a grand jury and brought in Mark Pomerantz and another guy whose name is escaping me, who came from like Paul Weiss, you know, they came from like the top law firm in the country, you know, and they were working pro bono and they were experienced former prosecutors that were building an airtight case, right? Those are the guys that went after Weisselberg and Weisselberg, by the way, was never going to flip. I remember everybody was trying to get clickbait last summer talking about Weisselberg's going to flip. And I said, no, he's not going to flip. He's a mobster. Who do you think he's more scared of? you know, attorneys generals that can easily be corrupted or the Russian mob <laughs> and the Trump empire. So he was never going to flip. But, uh, you know, you could still bring a case against him knowing that, you know, but now people are using that as an excuse to excuse Alvin Bragg for not moving forward from, from the case. So, you know, he's got this case that was, you know, grand jury and paneled all this evidence. I believe her name's Jennifer Weisselberg, but the daughter-in-law, of Alan Weisselberg was one of the main witnesses. And she's the one who gave him all this documentation about the, you know, the condo that wasn't claimed on the taxes and the kids' school tuition and all this sort of ways that Trump was hiding compensation to his employees to avoid paying taxes on it, right? So it's all part of this intricate financial scam that Trump had been running for decades. Let's be honest, his dad was doing the same stuff, right? Inflated assets when you're trying to get a bank loan, and depreciated assets, you know, when you're when you have to go pay your taxes. And Trump's a guy who was taking the star deduction every year in New York City, which is meant for people who make like less than either three hundred or five hundred thousand a year, you know. But either way, it wasn't something a billionaire should have been claiming. And if you remember, he claimed it on his taxes, got busted for it, and then reclaimed it again the next year. Right? No grift is too petty for those guys. If they could get free lunch, they would. OK, they would get food stamps and use them if they could just to screw 
the government over a little more. That's the kind of people they are, right? So you got a case against these guys. You finally have the political will to hold him accountable. You spend a year and a tremendous amount of money and resources on doing that. And now you have a grand jury that's about to expire next week there or next month. They're handing the evidence back to the witnesses. So, so the Weisselberg lady's like, dude, I took out a mortgage on my house to pay for lawyers to represent me in this, hoping that you would prosecute Trump and this family. And now they're hanging her out to dry. Right. So now she's gone up against the mob, her father-in-law, you know, and the Trump organization. So way to do her a solid. Right. So they're leaving the witnesses to be screwed, which why would the next ones come forward? You know, it's like why people always tell me when I talk about my friends who've been assaulted by Trump that you don't know about. Guys will be like, well, why don't they come forward? Why should they come forward? Where has there been an example of this guy being held to account for his crimes? There are none. So this is yet another situation. And Mark Pomerantz's resignation letter was leaked. And he said in it, like, I wanted to pursue charges. We feel like we had a rock solid case of criminality. And he deserves to be indicted for that, you know, and Alvin Bragg's like, no, nah, I don't really see a case here. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. And Alvin's not a stupid guy. This is a Harvard law kind of guy. Not that, you know, that's always the indicator of greatness. <laughs> as, we, as we learn on a daily basis, thanks to the guys of the GOP, you know, Ted Cruz went to Harvard Law, too. But my point is, you know, Alvin Bragg's a guy who ran on the fact that he was going to hold Trump accountable. My guess in all this is that, you know, Mayor Adams is going to be a problem for New York City. I think a lot of people are maybe still in denial and hoping it's going to work out, but it ain't going to work out. Okay. That guy is bad news. He's starting up stop and stop and frisk again. You know, he's obviously cares only about the PBA and the NYPD and, 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 you know, feeling like a tough guy and a suave, swaggery guy and keeping favor with the NYPD. Who doesn't want to see Trump indicted? Okay. Like Trump's got a ton of support in the NYPD. They love his ass, you know? So I, I my guess, you know, is that Bragg is like, Hey, we're here. We're here for the long haul. I want two terms, you know, like, I'm not going to like risk that on bringing this case against Trump, who everybody else let him slide. Why do I got to do it on my watch? Right. Why does Mayor Adams have to be the guy to pick the war with the NYPD and the Russian mob and stuff? Which, by the way, there's guys that Giuliani appointed, you know, that are still in positions of power in Manhattan. I don't think most people really understand how corrupt it is and how corrupt Giuliani made the power structure in New York City. And you have to do a deeper dive on that that can, I can explain to you here. But, you know, Michael Cohn, for example, who's like the darling of the left now on his podcast, grew up with Felix Sater in Bay Ridge. You know, they were coming up together in the Michael Cohn was a mob lawyer. <laughs> I don't know what you think he is now, but that was his job. He still lives in Trump Park Avenue. And Felix Sater was the guy who was the cutout between like Semyon Magolovich and all these really hardcore Russian oligarch mob types and the sort of corporate world in New York City. For instance, at one point, Felix Sater worked down at 40 Wall Street, which is a Trump property down downtown, obviously, in Wall Street. And they were trying to like sort of 
clean Russian cash, you know, money launder through stocks and securities. And there was a big scandal he got busted for there. But, you know, basically his role was helping get that wealth out of the former Soviet Union and into, you know, clean investments in, in New York and beyond. So, you know, and that was Trump's game, right? So that, that's a big operation that, as I said before, a lot of people make commissions on, you know, a lot of law firms get retainers out of that kind of business. So there's a lot of cash to get spread around these white collar kind of things. And, you know, folks don't want to give that up too easy, especially folks with uh, political aspirations that are in positions of power now and basically, you know, have everything to lose and nothing to gain, especially if they look at the national example and say, well, you know, Maine justice isn't going after his ass. Why do I have to do it? You know, it's easier to let him slide than it is to, to make waves. And, you know, as I, t I talked about the, the film last week, I, you know, uh, I can't think of the name. I mentioned it last week. It's, I think it had a bad title, but it was a great documentary on all the uh, events of Trump money laundering Inc. in Russia came out in 2018. And, uh, you know, that does the kind of deep dive you, you need. They're long Russian names. It, it, it's a family tree that'll make you very confused, but it all sort of leads back to Trump. Giuliani, Felix Sater was a main part of this whole thing. And he had Trump org business cards, you know, and, and then once they got into power, once you had Jared Kushner and these guys on the political scenes, the tentacles just went that much deeper, you know, and then it, it, it changed from a Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, mob sort of like triad of laundering to, you know, stretches all the way down to Georgia and Mitch McConnell and, you know, Deripaska and, you know, Ron DeSantis down in Florida laundering, you know, Russian cash, you know, where you had Lev Farnes down there and Igor Fruman getting all the cash from these same dudes and buying off DeSantis, the same folks that poured cash into Trump. And his properties were going around pouring it into members of the GOP. And now they own half of them, right? Every night we see people on the TV now spreading Putin's propaganda. You know, Madison Cawthorn did it about five times last week. You know, little freaking troll Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing it last night. Trump had a rally last night. This is Sunday I'm recording this. You're hearing this Monday. But, you know, he had a rally in Commerce, Georgia, and he was emboldened because he got that news, right? He knew that he won that case against Alvin Bragg, basically, that they weren't going to come after him, right? And now he gets to stall on the state case, right? Which is Letitia James. But that's not a criminal case. Her case is a civil case. That's a difference. That could shut down his business, but it ain't going to throw him in jail, right? So he was emboldened last night. I've been watching that guy a long time. You know, I saw a new chapter last night and he's got this authoritarian thing you know all bets are off with that so he's like i will bring them to heel you know he's got this Mussolini language and he threw in an f-bomb last night and got a big cheer so that'll be another element of it and that'll be fun when they sort of like bleep out the f-bombs when they're carrying his campaign rallies you know for his 2024 run like on CNN, they'll bleep out the F-bombs of a guy who tried to overthrow the government, you know, who's a walking obscenity, right? But there'll still be some standards and practice. It's crazy. It's, 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 it's beyond the pale. And it's, it's bad news 
that they didn't hold his feet to the fire. It should have been every prosecutor going after him. You want to make him busy. He needs death by a thousand cuts. It won't be any one case that takes down Trump. It'll be the onslaught of cases that make it crumble within from its own weight because that's how big the organization is now. It needs to have so much pressure around it that it implodes upon itself and sucks into like negative space, like a black hole, okay? <laughs> that's what needs to happen, right? It needs to like, it needs to disappear into some void of insanity, right? But unless you apply the proper pressure, it won't do that. And now it's metastasizing. Now it's not a dark star. It's a freaking cyst that's growing. It's a tumor, okay? And it's a profitable one. And it's one that's now being imported. It's being franchised, for lack of a better word, across the United States. That's why Tennessee now has legislation every day that, that makes Florida look moderate, you know, let alone Texas. It's no mistake that all these states are doing this right now. You know, they're on the warpath and we're sitting around hoping that Merrick Garland is doing his job. And I have no reason to believe he's not doing his job, but I have every reason to believe and understand that he's not reading the moment correctly. And he's not saying to the American people, what we need to hear is that justice is coming and it may take a minute, but fear not. I will get every last one of these guys and hold them accountable. Some people may have heard that in his statements. It's not what I've heard. But either way, he definitely is missing the moment on how much we need a forceful leader saying, I'm going to return things to their rightful order. As I've said before, the symbol of justice is a lady holding a sword and a scale, right? It means I'm going to balance it out with vengeance, you know, with surgical precision. And that's what we need. And we don't know that we're getting that. And the chaos agents are getting louder and louder. And Trump is becoming emboldened and he's raising more money. He has more money in his pack now than the RNC and the DNC have combined. Think about that. He's basically raised more money, you know, in the year and a half or whatever, since he tried to attack the Capitol, year and a quarter, than both the other political parties combined. You know, I'm not saying he's going to win next time, but you're going to have a hard time running against that, you know, especially with all the malfeasance they'll up, they're up to and all the gerrymandering. You know, Ohio isn't going to have a fair election that a Republican's in for a generation because they've gerrymandered the state so poor, badly in their favor and nobody's paying attention to that. And that's happening all over the country. And we're going to have a rude awakening, I believe, in the midterms. And that's not to say don't get out and vote. Get out and vote and bring three of your neighbors. Okay, everybody's got to vote. But sometimes voting isn't enough if they're cheating. That's why one, one of Trump's big taglines now is this line that isn't apparently Stalin never said, but who cares at this point? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it doesn't matter how many people vote. It matters who counts the vote. Votes, right? That was the whole strategy, right? So... The mistakes they made last time in not being able to steal the election, they won't make this time, you know, and they didn't have your Marjorie Taylor Cawthorns and your Lauren Boberts and all these guys at a national level of prominence like they are now. And that's going to be another arrow in their quiver because they're chaos agents and those guys can do all kinds of stuff, you know, 
They had Purdue on stage last night. He's running for governor in Georgia now, saying the other guy was a criminal because he didn't make Trump president. He didn't overturn the results. The other guy's Kemp, a scumbag scumbag, right? The guy who used racism and cheated when he was secretary of state against his opponent, right? Who was an African-American woman. Right. So he ran on racism and guns. One was as Trumpy as you could get. And now Trump hates him and wants Purdue to go against him. That's insane. Right. That guy's going to stand on a public stage and be like, yeah, if I'm president, he's going to, you know, if I'm governor, he's president, period. I'll overturn the results. And they're not turn, they're not talking 24. They're talking about 2020. Trump's still obsessed with overturning the last results which is Trump, by the way, if you know him, he's the most like resentful person you'll ever meet. And since recovery is kind of a theme, you know, resentment is the number one offender, as they say, like it's resentments that'll make you drink and drug again when you're sober because they eat you up inside. It's aggrievement and anger and it's toxic and poison. And it's something I've studied because <laughs> I got a lot of them and they come up every day and I'm in recovery, right? And that was part of the reason I understood how messed up Trump was because I saw the resentments in real life. I saw how he'd think, uh, you know, a cue card guy was setting him up because he was putting a three-syllable word on there that Trump couldn't pronounce, <laughs> right? And I was like, this is the most resentful mf -er I've ever goddamn seen. Like the most unsober with the most unarrested alcoholism and addiction in terms of isms and character defects that I've ever seen. So they're still prosecuting 2020, right? And what was the big revelation this week? It was that Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, the lady who I tweeted in January, any story on SCOTUS should open with the fact that Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, was one of the organizers of January 6th. And it was a tweet that like went viral, right? Got like 50,000 likes. So I put it on Facebook. And it got went viral on Facebook, which rarely happens because <laughs> I hate Facebook. <laughs> okay. So I'm not, I'm not hanging out on Facebook all the time. Also in March, Facebook sucks because like everybody's born in March. So you feel guilty every time you log in that you miss like a hundred birthdays, including my own, which was March 18th, last Friday. But anyway, I digress. So I put this post on, on Facebook in February and Facebook removes it saying like they couldn't verify the information. And then PolitiFact writes an article about it saying like, yeah, there's no way to prove that she was an organizer and blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't talking about the buses. I wasn't taking the bait on she paid for the buses. I don't know about any of that. I know that she was promoting it on her Facebook page, which is promoting organizing. You could split hairs you know, over the word I used and, and promoting would have been a, a better, safer choice. I, I went with organizer, right? But PolitiFact, whoever the hell they are, write this article, de de you know, debunking it on their political meter. And they also lied and said they reached out to me for comment, which they did not. I have a website that has PR people listed clearly on it. <laughs> it's not hard to get in touch with me. They did not get in touch with me, which is a common ploy in online journalism you know they always say we reached out for comment no they didn't you know if you were really serious about getting a comment you don't run with a story until you get the comment that's how it works in the real world but anyway so politifact debunks this and what do we learn this week 
right? That Ginny Thomas texted Mark Meadows 29 times after the election on November 8th, talking about overturning the election and releasing the Kraken and all kinds of other stuff that crazy Ginny, you know, Ginny Thomas, who was part of CAN, which was an act like anti-cult network because she was in a cult sort of when she was younger. And uh, that's another story. You can look it up on your own. But she was in this cult where they'd make everybody strip down in front of each other and they body shame you and stuff. Like you'd strip down in a bikini and they'd be like, Ginny's got a fat ass. <laughs> and it was meant to like improve you somehow. But she was part of that and then got mad at it and, and started this other like anti-cult network. And she's, a you know, one of these crazy Federalist Society kind of Christians, you know, and she's obviously had his ear forever. And apparently she's just a horrible person. You know, there's anecdotes on there about her making fun of a school kid at a public you know, school performance and the kid tripped over a bandstand and she basically heckled him from the audience and stuff. You can just tell she's an awful person, right? You know, nobody's re beyond redemption, but like, you know, Ginny ain't coming to the cookout. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so anyway, she gets busted for these 29 text messages. And by the way, Clarence Thomas was the only dissent in the vote on whether or not to release these phone records and stuff to the January 6th committee, right? He was the only guy who was like, no, they shouldn't get the information. Like the fact that he didn't recuse himself from that case alone should be cause for impeachment, right? He shouldn't be on the bench come tomorrow morning, okay? And we won't even have to get into what he did to Anita Thomas, right? Anita Hill, sorry. Clarence Thomas did to Anita Hill, right? And I remember that when I was 20 years old. I, that was when I lived in D.C., you know, I used to deliver to EEOC every day. I remember the confirmation hearings. And I remember anybody with a brain, not just Democrats and Republicans, but anybody who basically wasn't a misogynistic asshole knew that Anita Hill was telling the truth at the time. It, it was eerily similar to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, right? When his accuser came into the Senate chamber and you could see her getting the same ire that Anita Hill got. They didn't want to believe her. The old boys club doesn't like women coming forward from somebody's past and speaking out, right? Because he's already made it through the circuit. He's made it through the country clubs. He's made it through the colleges and the prep schools. This is his right. He's a white man. This is big business here and we need this guy on the court. Now, who's this lady coming forward talking about stuff we don't talk about, right? That's why Lindsey Graham gets the most mad every time, because he's the king of we don't talk about what goes on behind closed doors, because he doesn't want to talk about what he does, right? So anyway, Clarence Thomas doesn't recuse himself. He takes this vote, and now we find out Ginny Thomas was communicating with the White House chief of staff, who was communicating back to her in crazy texts like, hey, don't worry, the king of kings will will put, you know, our rightful leader back on the throne. I'm paraphrasing, but it was that like crazy, like he was speaking like he was in ye old days, you know, in this wacky biblical like nonsense, you know, with a Supreme Court justice's wife. Like that's insane. And it shows how deep the effort was inside the White House to overturn the results of the election. You know, and I've spoken before about 
the, the call center they had, right? They had a call center center where they were calling up state senators and trying to get them and, and electors to pressure electors to, to, to switch out the votes and, and, and vote in favor of Trump instead of Biden in Wisconsin and all these places. It was organized. They had call centers. They had telemarketers, like junior interns making these calls. Rachel Maddow played them before she left on her show, which was amazing, you know? So they had this major operation to overturn an election. We have stacks of evidence of it now, and we're getting no justice. I mean, it was an outrageous story that everybody was talking about on Twitter. I did my car rant about it, you know? Everybody's pissed off about it, and nobody's going to do a damn thing about it, it feels like. And I mentioned the Facebook political fact thing because of all the tweets that I've had and things that I've said in the last three years that I've had the Twitter account, Noel Kassler comedy, can you imagine that being the one that they take down? Like that really should point to something if you're paying attention, because you know what I've said about Trump and his kids, not a peep about any of that, not a single challenge. But the one time I mentioned Ginny Thomas, it gets pulled off of Facebook. To me, that, you know, that shows me where the, you know, the bread is being buttered. And it shows me that we haven't investigated this stuff enough. The infrastructure that allowed Trump to become president in 2016, right? He wouldn't have won without Facebook and all these right-wing groups. And now they're doubling down. They're pouring tons of cash into these operations, you know, and they've, they've cloned Trump, right? They have smarter Trumps waiting in the wings. You have Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, the women, you know, <laughs> the women. I'm not trying to give the women less credit, you know, but you have the Carrie Lake in Arizona. You have, the, you know, the lady in South Dakota, the model, whatever, who, who's completely corrupt in her own state. You know, you have, you have an organized effort of a lot of people who saw that this worked and you have a lot of billionaires that are willing to fund these whack jobs and to let QAnon talking points come into Senate hearings as they did this week when Josh Hawley tried to paint KBJ as somehow soft on pedophiles. Okay. And that's not mentioning the leader of their party. Donald Trump fits the definition of a pedophile. If you want a guy who sleeps with 13 year old girls, as the definition, that's Trump. You know, he started grooming a friend of mine when she was 10. He took interest in her. She was taking figure skatings at his rink. By 12, she called him her dirty uncle. By her early 20s, she was hanging out in Epstein's townhouse with Trump having sex with them and said, you won't believe what these men did to women, Noel. You know, so Trump's a freak. He made his daughter give him lap dances on the regular. There's a million pictures of it. There's nobody who ever worked with Donald Trump who would trust him around their teenage daughters. Okay. But Josh Hawley is going to infer that KBJ is somehow soft on pedophilia. And then Donald Trump Jr. is going to make videos saying she's just going to let all the pedophiles go. These are QAnon talking points. And as I've said before, those QAnon talking points came from Russian psyops because the Russians knew that if they manipulated people emotionally, they would 
paint Trump as sort of the, you know, the guy on the, the vanguard of fighting against pedophilia, because I knew he was weak on pedophiles, right? Whenever I mention Trump and Epstein, I get swarmed by Russian bots because they know it's a subject that he's vulnerable on. If I say Trump is a racist, I won't get a single bot because it doesn't hurt the base. They, they, they're glad he's racist, <laughs> so they don't get mad. But if I say he's a pedophile or mention his association with Jeffrey Epstein, I'll instantly get swarmed and I have to turn off my uh, replies. That shows you the strategy and the organization here, okay? And it shows you that what these guys are doing, you know, in a Senate Judiciary Committee Supreme Court confirmation hearing is bringing in weaponized talking points that are being funded by fringe groups that basically don't want to pay income taxes, right? And it's all going to heat up now that Biden's got this new bill to make billionaires kind of pay their fair share, you can expect the chaos to get ramped up because now Elon Musk and these other guys are going to get in on it. They're going to feel threatened, you know? But think about that. Think about Josh Hawley, who, by the way, is a goddamn freak, okay? Have you seen that picture that he hung in his dorm room in Stanford? That's freaky stuff, okay? His first job at 22, he wanted to be an intern at an all-boys school in London. Like something ain't right with that dude. And I guarantee you a deep dive would prove it, right? Because that's also who they get to do their bidding or compromised people because they know they own them forever. They know if you're a Republican guy and you kind of have a taste for little boys, if you get that secret, you're going to get them to do whatever they like, you know, especially when all their power is gleaned from this like Christian white supremacy, Southern BS, you know? KBJ is the best of us, okay? She is better than any other candidate we've had in terms of qualifications. She has more experience than anybody else we've had in modern times up for that gig, right? But somebody like a Tom Cotton, the descendant of slave owners, who's a bitter, racist, false valor guy who lied about like being an army ranger, you know, he went to like the training school or something in the U.S. He acts like he's freaking Rambo. Dude's got a neck like a giraffe, man. He's like, if you wanted to cast an enslaved person's plantation owner, like that you just hated, he would be the guy. If I was a casting director, I'd be like, go get me a, go get me a Tom Cotton for this role. <laughs> you know, guy's a scumbag, but they're disparaging this woman of grace and dignity an incredible accomplishment, who's, by the way, her passion for the law made me excited about the law. You know, what a gift and how lucky we are to have a woman like this take that position because she will get confirmed. You know, she had a, a genuine joy in discussing this stuff. That's why she turned everything back to her record and explained it with a passion, with somebody who loves and cares for the law. You know, that's what you want. Right. You want like I always say on the show, you want policy wonks in your position as bureaucrats. Somehow the right was able to con Americans into thinking an outsider was going to solve all their problems. Right. When you go to the dentist, you're not looking for an outsider to come in. Right. You're not like, hey, can you get the guy outside the window with a weed whacker to come in and pull this tooth? I need an outsider. I don't want somebody who's been doing this every day. You know, I want a fresh take on a molar extraction, right? 
Nobody ever says that, but you're going to say it when it comes to the courts and the Congress. You're nuts. You want somebody just like KBJ, somebody who's dedicated her life to the law and to being the best she can be and has proven it over and over and has looked at it from all sides. So she understands the disparities in our justice system, which is what we're crying out for right now is empathy. And then add on to that, she's a well-rounded person with a beautiful family that came up in a time where families that looked like hers were under attack. They're still under attack. You know, a family from, of law enforcement, you know, of such an honorable long history in Miami and Baltimore. I mean, that's the best of America. That was a promise of America. That picture, I'll start crying right now. That picture of her daughter looking at her is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Sometimes somebody can take a picture that just tells a big chunk of American life in one image. That picture does that. That tells a story. It tells a story of who we came from and who we can be and what promise can be delivered to us all. If, if we rise up and sort of do the right thing, if we let progress happen, it only makes us all richer. You want the best person for the job on the job. You don't just want him on the job because he's an old white guy and he's conservative and he'll rule in favor of the oil company when the EPA gets to get sued next month, which is a case in front of the Supreme Court right now that might allow coal miners and coal companies to sue the EPA, Right? To, to knock down the Clean Air Act. That's insane, right? But the Republicans always want these old white guys that are gonna you know, side on the side of big business. And that gets couched in siding on the way of conservatism because they manipulate these people with all this Southern Christianity, guns, cheap gas BS, right? So those people don't see how they're really getting screwed you know, by big banks and big corporations. And that's what Citizens United did to this country. You know, Mitch McConnell has done more damage to this country than Osama bin Laden ever will. You know, and Donald Trump in the end will maybe be the guy who breaks this country because it is goddamn disheartening. You know, it's, you got to fight every day, you know, and, and luckily our fight is, you know, so far at the ballot boxes and online, but, you know, it's hard to imagine violence not happening here with this army that he's building and funding, you know, none of us have, have seen things like what we saw this week, like an attack on a woman purely because she was a person of color, you know, and using the worst tropes you could use, hurling them at her. You know, Lindsey Graham having drunk, drunk, you know, on Tuesday morning, he was shit faced. And I know because he grabbed his drink when he stormed out. That's an alcoholic move. I'm a recovering alcoholic, man. You don't forget your drink. Have a big tantrum. Oh, got to grab that. You know, anybody who knows what it looks like can recognize it on him. You know, it's all performative stuff, as we well know. They were doing all that to get the clips on, on Hannity that night. You know, Ted Cruz used the whole week to just showboat and be an idiot. You know, his racist babies line, where I had a tweet. I said, I, I met a random baby. I asked him if he was racist. He said, no, 
but I fucking hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> I like that joke. Anyway, uh, it was disgusting. And it's indicative of, you know, a fracture in this country that I don't think any of us have seen before. The fact that you could spit out QAnon talking points in a Senate confirmation hearing, SCOTUS confirmation hearing, and nobody would say, hey, sir, that's beneath the honor of this party. In the contrast, by contrast, the GOP sent out a tweet that was a meme of KBJ's face and KBJ was crossed out and they wrote in CRT, which doesn't even exist, right? It's a law school theory and it's correct and people should learn about it, but it's not something they're teaching your kids. But that was the whole you know, methodology of the assault on her by the right was that, you know, they were going to teach your kids to hate white people. It's insane. It's fear mongering. It's ugly. It's beneath the hallowed halls of the Supreme Court and the United States Congress and Senate. But it's there. That's where we're at. That's what we've let these people degrade us to. And remind yourselves that Ted Cruz is a product of the Tea Party. And Ginny Thomas was one of the main sort of point people for the emerging Tea Party. She was the chairman of it at, some, at one point, you know, and that's 2010, right? That's after Biden got, I mean, after Barack Obama got elected, the GOP was like, we got to go full racism now. That's our best, our best, you know, move yet is knowing that a lot of whites and a lot of red states hate the fact that he's black. And we just got to play that up and we got to get every whack job we can in Congress. And now we got all this money because of Citizens United. So we got the Cokes on board and the Mercers. And we need somebody to spread this money and this ideology, ideology around D.C. And that was Ginny Thomas because she was already in a position since the late 80s and the 90s to do that. And she's married to a Supreme Court justice who speaks at her events. You know, he speaks at conservative events that she chairs. That's crazy, but the infrastructure is there and it's well-funded and it's racism. And racism is a powerful tool in this country because we've never been honest about where we've come from with that. We need CRT. We need to educate our young people about what the truth is about this country and how we've held people down and how we've kept people back from achieving their excellence. And when all people get to live the way they should live and have equal opportunity, we all benefit and we get gifts we haven't even seen yet in life. And we solve problems that are immense and seemingly unsolvable at this point. We need all hands on deck. The ship is sinking. We need every piece of talent that the universe has given us to turn this thing around and save this planet. With 70 degrees in Antarctica this week, big chunk you know, of the ice shelf fell off. It's not even on the news because there's so much other insanity, okay? But part of the strategy on the right is these chaos agents is sort of stealing the headlines and not getting you to look at what's really going down. If you look at what's really going down, you're scared right now, you know? If you know how to read the tea leaves, you, you don't like what they're saying because it's dangerous. We're in perilous times. The war in Ukraine being the most obvious manifestation of that. My heart breaks every night 
I won't get into any of those stories from this week now. You've all seen it on your own. I'm not glossing over it. It's just worthy of its own episode. Heartbreaking things. You know, aggression and the same sort of aggression that's rearing its head in this country. The same sort of will to have an authoritarian leader because you're going to screw over the other guy and that's worth giving up your freedom for. That'll be a powerful elixir in the MAGA mentality that's rising up. Because I see the people react to it. Like dudes I went to high school with on Facebook love to share the like, a dude's competing as a swimmer. That's messed up. Like these, you know, as a female swimmer, these knee jerk kind of things, they hook these rednecks in it. It's like the hook sets in the cheek every time. These social kind of issues that you can distill down to a meme, these guys fall for it every time. And it becomes a cultural thing. And then their buddies click on it and share it and everybody sees it. So then before they've done any research and gained any real knowledge, they show up at the poll, polls and they're like, yep, got to vote for the Republicans. Otherwise, my kid's going to bring a transvest, you know, transgender person home on the lacrosse team or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, what are you even scared of? You think somebody's going to like transition? just because they want to compete against your kid at Fox Lane Elementary School or junior high school or whatever? Like, what are you you so fearful of? You know, that's what I want to ask these folks. Like, what are you freaking so scared of? And maybe you should think about the people that are trying to scare you all the time are actually trying to screw you. You know, what you should be scared of is not how much a gallon of gas costs. It should be what a gallon of gas does to this planet, to this environment, and how little time you have left if you don't do something about it. You think you're worried about your kid's future? Worry about that, because there is no future if we don't turn this stuff around. The Koch brothers don't freaking care about your kids. They don't care if your kids have to compete against other kids that are living their truth. They care about keeping you dumb so they can continue to rip you off. That's it. And it's working, because I see a lot of dumb people out there, you know, and they're only getting dumber. You know, and they're only getting more distracted and they're only getting angrier. Myself included. (laughs) I know this is an angry one, but, uh, you know, I write jokes all day, too. I try to make this satire. And speaking of that, I'm going to be at City Winery in New York City. I just announced it on Friday. City Winery, New York City, June 7th. I'm going to be in the loft headlining a show. Going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to get back on stage, kick off the summer. The next night, I'm going to be in Philadelphia, one of my favorite cities on the East Coast. If ever there's a city that's like sort of overlooked, it's Philadelphia. If you want to talk about good restaurants, go to Philadelphia. It's the best eaten town on the East Coast, hands down. Puts New York to shame, in my opinion. Philly is a great town. It's a beautiful town, too. So uh, I'm going to be at Philly, June 8th, City Winery Loft. So New York City, Philly, right? Back to back. That's no joke. And I'm going to be there. Actually, there'll be a lot of jokes, (laughs) but a lot of stories. I'll talk about some, you know, some stuff on the road and some inspirational stuff and we'll have some fun and we'll say hello. I love all the fans of the podcast and it's obviously the best thing about performing live, you know, besides making you guys laugh and getting to see you is getting to talk to people afterwards and come up and take a selfie and, you know, spend some time and I'll have my t-shirts there. Shout out to Kristen who bought a t-shirt last week. Those t-shirts are on my website in case you guys want one. And, uh, you know, you can find me at noelcastler.com. I'll be on Twitter. 
I'm trying to wrap it up now because I know it's heavy stuff, you know, and uh, I'll get some friends on soon to talk about other stuff and stories. But, you know, I can't look away, you know, and I want to do my best to try and help us all like understand this because it just gets exhausting, you know, and that's what they want. You know, they want you to be exhausted and they want you to give up and they want you to sort of, you know, get lost in the in the infighting. You know, one of the things I see a lot in Democratic side of things is if you criticize the DOJ right now, you will get attacked, right? And as I often do, but instantly you're going to get middle-aged white folks like, screw you, comedian, what do you know? Everything isn't like law and order. Just let them do their job. Like people get really angry because they're in sort of a deep state of denial, right? So they want to be contrary. People are addicted to being contrary in their replies. And that's a sign of sort of unwellness, you know, a lack of serenity. Because normally a mature person sees that and you're like, oh, I'm going to keep scrolling. That's his opinion. He's a comedian. That's what he does. You know, he voices moods and things that he sees. And when I voice that, I'm addressing what I said earlier, is that whether he's doing a job, his job or not, now, you know, I believe, I don't think they're not working on Trump stuff. I don't think they're ignoring any of this. I think they're missing the demand in our country right now for somebody to tell them what's going on. It doesn't mean you have to tell them the details of the case, but you have to reassure people that justice will be there for them because people are not assured and they're scared and they're going into an election, right? It's, it's the end of March. Next week's show, it'll be April. The election's in November. How much time do you really think you have? to bring cases, especially if you're waiting for January 6th committee to, to wrap up their work and do their hearings, which God knows what kind of like freak show circus that's going to be, right? Can you imagine how much disruption is, you know, Lindsey Graham's going to have a heart attack. He's going to commit Harry Carey or something <laughs> to, to distract them, you know? Jim Jordan's going to come in in his wrestling tights, you know, and start screaming at everybody with his cauliflower ears, right? It's going to be a freak show and it's all designed to get you angry, to get you confused, to get you looking over here. So you got to do something. You got to address it. And when you when you ask for that, people will attack you. People that have been following you for a long time, instead of just keeping moving, you know, I, I could never imagine saying something in a stranger's replies. Like if they didn't ask me directly a question, I couldn't imagine just going on somebody else's feed and be like, I disagree wrong. Like. I just keep going, you know, but people are addicted to that. And I get it. And a lot of people like to interact, but people will get so angry. I just block them. I ain't got time for it, you know, because this is a war, man. I'm not, I don't get paid for this. You know, you got to buy a ticket if you come see a show, but like my Twitter's free. I'm not asking you for money. I don't have a pack. I'm not, you know, I don't care if you follow me or not. I'm grateful that people follow me, but it's, I got no beef, you know, no qualms blocking your ass. So if you say that, I'm just going to block you because I don't want people like that hanging. Right. I, I, I think of my Twitter feed and the fans of this podcast, how I would run like a backstage meet and greet, which was my responsibility often as a road manager. And it's like, if you say something stupid to Crosby, you're out of there. I'm going to remember it. You're not on the list next time. You know, if you ask for a selfie and I told you not to go up and ask him for a selfie and you went up and did it anyway, you're out of there. So I'm already coming from it. Like, are you cool enough to be following me? <laughs> you know? So if you say something stupid, I'm happy to block you. Anyway, 
But if you don't, I'm happy to, uh, you know, I'm happy that you're there and just everybody do what they can. I, I, people react to you sometimes like you owe them something. You know, I'm not NBC News. Like I'm just one person saying what I'm saying. Like, and people will get so angry at you no matter what, because a single tweet doesn't have every aspect and point of view and piece of information, right? You forgot, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, so what? I only had so many characters. You don't even know what I was tweeting at is the other thing, you know? It's like my tweets are coming from a very specific thing that I'm reacting to, but people read them and they want them to encompass the entire, you know, realm of, of the Twitter verse. Like, it's just insane. Okay. So take care of yourselves, you know, get out in nature. If, if you can, it's going to be 20 degrees in New York this week uh, here on the East coast. We don't get that sunshine. Like you guys get out West and in the South, man, it's a long, brutal winter, but uh, we'll be out of it at some point. We're, we're in the gray, still cold stage right now, but you know, we got each other. And we're not having bombs dropped on us tonight. And we got a chance to fight. We got a chance to make this world a better place. Wake up every day and do it. You know, meditate, pray, do whatever you can do that makes you sort of stand up straight and feel some hope and gratitude for what you already have and for realizing that that's enough. You know, in any opportunity, any moment, you can always be helping somebody else. If you're going in that direction, you're going in the direction of victory, you know? You're using your time and your presence and your spirit to lighten the load for somebody else. And what, what better thing could you do in the day, right? What better legacy could you have in life? You know, look at World Central Kitchen. You know, look what they're accomplishing. If you had a choice between doing that or being a billionaire, I'd do that any day of the week. You know, feeding people that are traumatized and hungry, crossing a border with their children giving them a hot meal, giving them something you made with love and nourishing them and letting them know that the world still cares and it's going to be all right. There's no greater gift than that. Take that over being Elon Musk and some egomaniac just trolling people all day on Twitter. He has more money than God. You know, there's a lot of just despicable people that have a lot of resources that they're not using for the common good. They're using it to further their own you know, agendas and increase their own wealth. You got to be suspicious of that. There's nothing to be suspicious about a guy handing a plate of food. He's not getting anything out of that. Well, he's getting a lot out of it. You know, he's using his time on this earth to help somebody else. And really he's, he's love. He's acted in love. And, and if you're acting in love, you're acting on the right side of history. So let's get out there and let's do some loving this week. I appreciate you guys listening. This is episode 56. Again, come see me, see me, New York City, June 7th and Philadelphia, June 8th. Until next week, take care of yourselves. Peace.